All right, everyone, welcome to the Toasty Kettle Podcast, where I help you connect with the past through food. My name is James, I'm your host, and today is episode 72. Today is part two on our snake oil salesman discussion. I think this might be my first ever two-part episode. There's just so much to say on this topic of patent medicines. I didn't want to put you through one massive episode. So before we get to part two, I want to thank you all for finding the show and listening. If this is your first episode, make sure you go back and listen to episode one or part one of this snake oil salesman episode. My hope is that you're able to dazzle, dazzle your friends and family with these interesting food facts that you learn on the show. I know I have a great time learning every week as I put this together. So if you like what you hear, make sure you leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. That's really the number one way you can help grow the show and keep this great content coming. So last week we covered patent medicines in all of their glory. These were medicines that anyone could invent and take to market. They didn't have to hold a license or have any specialized knowledge shoemakers, magicians, chemists, pharmacists, doctors were all trying to make a quick buck off of a gullible public. We talked about some of the crazier medications out there, some containing hard drugs. Today, we're going to talk about the dangerous medications that led to the formation of the FDA and actually led to the FDA getting some teeth to go after some of these companies and and individuals that produce these medications. We're also going to cover some of the patent medicines that have endured to today. Next week, we're going to take a minute to discuss patent medicines that not that survived to today, but that we see produced today. Uh, you flip through the channels and you see uh, advertisements for face creams and supplements and all of these things are patent medicine in in their own right. They are making a claim and hoping that we'll buy into it as a public. And we're going to talk about the history of dietary supplements. So great content. It just fits right in with this conversation on patent medicine. So with that out of the way, let's dive in for real. So the FDA, how did that get its start? In the late 1800s, the U.S. Department of Agriculture had a special division assigned to investigate food fraud and pharmaceutical claims. This division was called the Division of Chemistry, and it was nested under the USDA, and it later became the Bureau of Chemistry. Harvard Washington Wiley was appointed chief chemist in 1893, and he became a major activist for food and drug regulation. The public supported these movements because journalists would do their part to get the horrors of the food and drug industry out to the general public. Uh, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle was one of these major publications during this time, I also have to add that it is a horrifying book about the meatpacking industry, and if you like your steak, don't read it. (laughs) In 1901, a diphtheria vaccine that had been developed was tainted with tetanus. These vaccines were distributed and led to the deaths of 12 
kids in Missouri. This and other incidents like it led President Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, (laughs) to sign the Pure Food and Drug Act into law in 1906. And this law was also known as the Wiley Act because of Wiley's activism. This act formed the Food and Drug Administration. This act gave the government and law enforcement some teeth in handling allegations regarding food fraud and false claims, but it fell short in actually being able to regulate the industry. The act prohibited the interstate transport of food that had been adulterated. There were similar penalties for adulterated drugs where the strength, quality, or purity of the active ingredient wasn't clearly listed on the label. However, they still lack the authority to do much more than that. And if you remember back to last week's episode, the Bureau of Chemistry examined snake oil and concluded that it had violated the Food and Drug Act because it contained no actual snake oil. Journalists and consumer advocacy groups continued their relentless assault on products that were allowed under the 1906 legislation, but were in reality quite dangerous to humans. (laughs) There were worthless cures for diabetes and tuberculosis, a mascara lash lure that caused blindness, and I'm not kidding you, radioactive drinks. We're going to get to that in a minute. None of these complaints were able to produce legislation with enough support to get through Congress. However, that all changed in 1937. So what happened in 1937 that got Congress's attention in a way that they could no longer ignore? Well, in 1937, the S.E. Massengill Company created their own preparation of sulfan. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher these. I apologize in advance. Sulfanilamide using diethylene glycol as the solvent. So diethylene glycol, or DEG, is actually poisonous to humans and other mammals. The company's chief pharmacist and chemist Harold Watkins was not aware of this. So, elixir sulfanilamide was born. Now, remember at the time, there were no regulations on drugs and pharmaceuticals. There was no oversight from the government. Animal testing was not required by law before drugs were released. So, these harmful effects weren't widely known. In a very real sense, humans were the lab animals. Humans were the guinea pigs. You and I, our kids, were all subject to drugs that were not proven. Harold Watkins mixed raspberry flavoring into the drug, and they were off to the races. In September 1937, the company began distributing the medication. By October 11th, the American Medical Association received a report of several deaths related to this new medication. The Food and Drug Administration began an extensive search for cause. They discovered that the DEG solvent was responsible for the fatal effects of the drug, at least 100 deaths were blamed on this medication. So 100 deaths. The fallout from this ordeal was tremendous. People wanted answers and they wanted justice. They wanted the owner of the S.E. Massengill Company and they wanted the S.E. Massengill Company to be held responsible. So they pressed the owner of the company to admit some measure of responsibility he infamously answered, 
We have been supplying a legitimate professional demand and not once could have foreseen the unlooked for results. I do not feel that there was any responsibility on our part. So Harold Watkins, their chief chemist who developed the drug, he committed suicide in jail while he was waiting for trial. A grieving mother who wrote to President Roosevelt described the death of her daughter because of this medication. The first time I ever had occasion to call in a doctor for Joanne, and she was given elixir of sulfonilamide, all that is left to us is the caring for her little grave. Even the memory of her is mixed with sorrow, for we can see her little body tossing to and fro and hear that little voice screaming with pain, and it seems as though it would drive me insane. It is my plea that you will take steps to prevent such sales of drugs that will take little lives and leave such suffering behind and such a bleak outlook on the future as I have tonight. So that's deep, and I can really feel this woman's pain reading the letter. You have to remember that many families could tell a similar story at this time regarding their children and loved ones thanks to this medication. So what happened to the S.E. Massengill Company? The government used the power that they had under the 1906 Pure Food and Drugs Act, and they found that they had broken the rules because they called their product an elixir, even though it contained no ethanol. They were hit with a minimum fine, a slap on the wrist for being directly responsible for the deaths of over 100 patients. However, that's all the government could do. The company had broken no other laws. The public outcry was intense. There was no way Congress could deny it this time. It would be political suicide to continue to ignore the dangers that some medication could present. In 1938, they passed the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, This significantly increased the FDA's power to regulate the food and drug industry. Part of this legislation required companies to perform animal safety tests on their proposed new drugs and submit the data to the FDA before being allowed to market their products. Finally, the FDA had some teeth to pursue some of these fraudulent and dangerous medications. Before the FDA... Dangerous patent medications were not a rare occurrence. Medicines during this time period contained mercury, lead, arsenic, and tar. It's a wonder that mankind survived some of these perceived cures. So I'm going to dive into some of these more dangerous ones in more detail. So we have Dr. Tut's liver pills. Dr. Tut's manufacturing company had a noble crusade. They claimed that constipation is a crime against nature and no human being can be well for any length of time while constipated. They developed Dr. Tut's liver pills to aid them in this fight. The problem with these pills is they contained a large amount of mercury. During the 1800s, mercury was not recognized as a substance that was dangerous. It was a common treatment for syphilis and other medical problems during the time. However, mercury is toxic to humans, and it can cause memory problems, anxiety, hearing difficulties, and more. Kimball's white pine and tar cough syrup. I think there's one thing I can conclusively say about medicine during the 1800s and early 1900s. Don't take the cough syrup. (laughs) Last week, we talked about cough syrup containing hard drugs from morphine to opiates. Kimball's white pine 
and tar cough syrup's main ingredients was chloroform. Yes, chloroform. You know the liquid villains will use in a rag to knock people unconscious in movies? Yes, that chloroform. Chloroform is also a common ingredient in toothpaste and ointments. The danger of chloroform is possible inhalation. This can cause ataxia, coma, or death. Furthermore, long-term ingestion of cough syrup containing chloroform could lead to permanent kidney and liver damage. In 1976, the FDA banned chloroform for ingestion because it was shown to cause cancer in lab animals. So great stuff that people were (laughs) pounding down. Next one, Mrs. Moffat's Shoe Fly Powders for Drunkenness. I just, I love this one. This is a product that was popular in the 1800s. It was manufactured by M.F. Groves, Sun & Co. It alleged to be an effective antidote for drunkenness. It was made of antimony potassium tartrate, which induces vomiting. In 1941, the FDA took the product to court. The name of the case is great. United States verse 11 and a quarter dozen packages of articles labeled in part Mrs. Moffat's Shoe Fly Powders for Drunkenness. That's a mouthful. (laughs) Because tiny packets of powder can't defend themselves in court, the judge allowed the manufacturer to step in on their behalf. In this case, the United States argued that the product was actually dangerous to the health. Doctors testify that when ingested in a proper dose, the powder causes vomiting and diarrhea. The powder then leaves the intestines and can cause damage to the liver and kidneys. The judge ruled the manufacturer made fraudulent claims on what the powder could do. Also, the powder in question is dangerous to the health and not a cure for drunkenness. This next one is really crazy. Just blows my mind. Radioactive medications appeared in the early 1900s. Radioactive decay was discovered in 1896, and it sparked a bunch of people trying to find a use for radioactive substances. One of these medications was Radithor. (laughs) or Radithor. This was a medication that consisted of radium that had been dissolved in water. It was made by self-proclaimed Dr. William Bailey before Bailey decided to call himself a doctor, and before he created a radioactive medication, he was a Harvard University dropout. Now, this reminds me of my son over the summer with his cousins in the backyard beating cherries and leaves and liquid to a pulp to make juice. This is what happens when you don't understand the ingredients and how to actually make something. He claimed Radithor would stimulate the endocrine system. He also offered physicians a one-sixth kickback on each dose they prescribed. So everyone wins, right? (laughs) The most famous person to take Radithor was Ebenezer McBurney Byers. He was a wealthy American socialite, athlete, and industrialist. He took Radithor in 1927 after he suffered an arm injury from falling from a railway sleeping berth. He took several doses a day up until 1930. At that point, he had taken around 1,400 doses. He had continued to take it after the injury because he said it gave him a toned-up feeling. After he stopped taking Radithor, he lost weight, had severe headaches, his teeth began to fall out. In 1931, the Federal Trade Commission asked him to testify about his experience, but he was too sick to travel, so the commission sent a lawyer to him to take his statement at home. The lawyer reported that Byers' entire upper jaw and most of his lower jaw had been removed. His bones were slowly disintegrating. 
His death in 1932 was attributed to radiation poisoning. He was buried in a lead coffin because of the radiation contained in his body at the time of his death. So when he died, the Wall Street Journal wrote a piece on him. They said the radium water worked fine until his jaw came off. So not all patent medicines died at the start of the 20th century, and not all patent medicines were lethal. There are several brands that were popular in the past and managed to find some longevity. Instead of continuing to harp on pointless health claims, they rebranded and narrowed their focus on what their product could actually be used for. In the case of soda manufacturers, health claims were abandoned entirely. And as I dive into this next segment, I'm sure you're going to recognize some of these brands that have become household names over the years. 7-Up. Let's start with 7-Up. It's one of my son's favorites. When 7-Up launched in 1929, it was originally named Bib Label Lithiated Lemon Lime Soda. What a mouthful. By 1936, they had shortened the name to 7-Up Lithiated Lemon Lime Soda and finally to just 7-Up. I'm happy they shortened that mouthful. I will save the deep history of 7-Up for a different day. Today, we'll talk about it as a patent medicine. At launch, it contained lithium citrate, which was a mood stabilizer. The lithium was removed from the product in 1948. Coca-Cola, another popular soda that boasted medicinal qualities, was Coca-Cola. You can go back and listen to my episode on Coca-Cola for the full history of this epic drink. John Pemberton invented Coca-Cola in 1885 to help overcome a morphine addiction that he had. When the beverage launched, they claimed that it would cure a variety of diseases. This included morphine addiction, indigestion, nerve disorders, as well as headaches. Dr. Pepper. Dr. Pepper was invented in the late 1880s and first sold commercially in 1885. When they launched the product, they claimed that it was a digestive aid. While they were at it, they also claimed that it would restore vim, vigor, and vitality. I don't know about you, but I definitely feel restored after a few sips of this magical beverage. I love me some Dr. Pepper. (laughs) Root beer. Hire's root beer wasn't the first root beer to hit hit the market, but it was one of the more successful brands. When Charles Elmer Hire's launched his recipe for root beer in the 1870s, he marketed it as something that would purify the blood. Again, a common claim for a lot of these medications they believed impure blood was the reason we had a lot of illnesses. So (laughs) while they were throwing out claims, it would purify the blood and make rosy cheeks. It contained sassafras oil, which was banned in the 1960s by the FDA for being linked to liver damage and cancer. Today, other flavorings are substituted for the sassafras oil to ensure root beer retains that distinct flavor that we know and love. And you can listen to my entire episode on root beer uh, as well. Moxie. Let's keep the soda train rolling and talk about Pepsi and Moxie. I haven't done a dedicated episode on either of those yet, so stay tuned. Moxie was created around 1876. You may be noticing a trend by now. All of these sodas came into existence within years of each other. When it was launched, it was first known as Moxie Nerve Food. It was invented by Augustine Thompson in Lowell, Massachusetts. Thompson claimed that the ingredients came from an unnamed South American plant. It was later discovered to be the gentian root. He claimed that his drink was particularly effective against paralysis, softening of the brain, nervousness, and insomnia. 
Pepsi got its start in 1893. I love the names of these soft drinks before anyone from marketing got involved. Before Pepsi was called Pepsi, it was known as Brad's Drink. (laughs) Sounds like someone in a dorm room (laughs) came up with a soda and just called it Brad's Drink. This was named after Caleb Bradham, who made and sold Pepsi in his drugstore in New Bern, North Carolina. The drink was marketed as a digestive aid and a way to boost energy. Fletcher's Laxative. This one actually had a patent awarded awarded in 1868. The name says it all. This laxative was originally known as Pitcher's Castoria. It contained senna, sodium bicarbonate, essence of wintergreen, dandelion, sugar, and water. Over time, the formula changed. Today, it's known as Fletcher's Laxative. They removed alcohol from the recipe, and this is now a laxative marketed heavily towards kits. And finally, last but not least, we got to cover cough drops. So the last one is Smith's Brothers Cough Drops. These were the first cough drops produced and advertised in the United States. James Smith, uh, James Smith emigrated from Fife, Scotland to Canada in 1831 and eventually made his way to the States to start a life in New York. He opened an ice cream shop and purchased a cough drop recipe from a salesman named Sly Hawkins. Sounds like the name of a salesman. In 1852, he made his first batch of Smith brothers cough drops two of his sons william and andrew took over the company when james died originally these cough drops were sold out of glass jars and pharmacies and to prevent pharmacists from selling generic cough drops from imitators the smith brothers branded their drops and sold them in boxes that had been stamped with their portraits this iconic logo was trademarked in 1877 and the company aggressively defended that trademark This brand has been through a lot over the years, has disappeared from store shelves a time or two, and has changed ownership a few times. However, you can still find it on shelves today. So that's all I have for you today. Remember, next week we'll be discussing supplements and how they are the patent medicines of today. If you like what you heard, make sure you leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcast. You can also check me out online at toastykettle.com to sign up for our newsletter and read show notes and recipes. Until next week.